The reading is uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 1 to 16. Ephesians 4, uh, starting at verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is, one sp- well, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ's apportionate. That is why it is said, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, there's, a, there's a lovely novel uh, by... Uh, an American in New York City. His name is Jonathan Saffron Four. The novel's called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Uh, Tom Hanks made a movie about it. Uh, It's one of the first times Tom Hanks has ruined something. Uh, So don't watch the movie, read the book. Uh, But in this book, it's the story of this family in New York City, and they're grappling with uh, grief. Uh, It's after 9-11, this massive tragedy, uh, it's this family whose, uh, whose son had a, an adult, whose dad, whose brother, had gone to work that day and never came back. Uh, he, he went into a tower, a plane crashed into it, and, and that defined this family. And so the, this book is really about uh, that and their son, uh, who's a four-year-old boy, uh, Oscar, and he's roaming around uh, the city trying to kind of put the pieces of their life together, and it's filled with all sorts of funny, quirky things and flashbacks. But, but in this story, uh, there is um, the grandfather. Uh, the grandfather uh, is a survivor. Uh, he survived uh, Nazis in the Ukraine, uh, running as a Jewish man, uh, seeing his village uh, torn apart and blown up. Uh, he's a survivor. He comes to the States. He's part of the uh, relocation refugee program after World War II. Uh, and he uh, has a wife and a son, uh, and then he abandons them uh, physically, relationally, unable to bear the weight 
of what he's seen, what he's experienced, uh, unable to just sort of uh, get through even the own sins that he's committed, uh, full of unfaithfulness to both his, his wife and his son. And, and then he uh, does this uh, odd thing that I think we often do. Uh, he buys an apartment across the street from his family. And, and at one, one point of the story, uh, his, his grandson, which is the only person he has relationship with, they're, they're sitting there uh, in his apartment, and he's looking down uh, into the window of the apartment of his family. Uh, and he says this. He confesses to his grandson. He says, sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. Sometimes, he said, I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. That's a pretty depressing, but I think it's, and I fear, that's true for most humanity. That's the beauty of art. It holds a mirror up to us and it says, this is what's really going on with you. Uh, and here, I, I just fear that even as a, as a Christian, uh, even as a person who's you know, sold out for Jesus or whatever term you have in Australia, when we really look at it, we're kind of on that outside looking in. For whatever reason, we've put ourselves really far on the outside, and, and we can even hear the weight of our bones cracking under all the lives, all this beautiful, extravagant life that we're called to, but we're not living. We make Christian life about a set of uh, good virtues to live. Maybe we uh, really uh, have messed up, really, really made a terrible you know, mess of our lives, made poor decisions, uh, fell in love with the wrong people, the people that we loved, we wounded really harshly, and we separate ourselves. Or we've made it a list of rules to obey so that we would never do that again. But all the while, our bones are crushed under the weight of a full life that we're not living. We dedicate ourselves to structures or, or maybe even just to a state of being, you know, a state of happiness, a state of uh, we're able to block ourselves off from being able to really experience something so that we don't feel the pain of this life. Maybe it's a, what we do with Christianity is we just make it a tradition to, to sort of latch onto. It's a family thing. Uh, it's a family business. We do it to make other people feel well. But then when we read the scriptures and we see what they describe about this life, it just feels so foreign to us. Uh, in this passage in Ephesians 4, I think Paul uh, really describes something that we struggle even to fathom or to measure, to understand. He's describing a life that uh, we can't uh, even picture. And I think often we, we might come to it and just say, oh yeah, that's some, those are some good pieces there. Uh, but this morning what I want us to do is to kind of understand what Paul's doing in this passage. He's writing to people uh, just like us. Uh, we might fantasize about these, the first Christians. They were the really good ones. And ever since then, we've just kind of been diluting the pot. Uh, every time a new person comes, we're just less, 
less vigorous, less into it. But what I see in the New Testament is uh, a people just like us, standing on the outside often from the lives that we were called to live. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul, Paul makes a really big change from the rest of the book. Uh, it's a big shift. It's kind of the hinge on this, you know, if you imagine the book as a door, it's the hinge that, that kind of opens up to this whole new thing. Up until now, he's been talking all this beautiful doctrine. It's really beautiful, extravagant, uh, filled with really fantastic rhetoric. And then all of a sudden, he uses this one word, uh, therefore, or then. Uh, we skip over it often, but with that singular word, we're reminded that everything he has to say is in that he's about to say is incredibly linked to everything he said before. Paul's saying the first three chapters matter, not just for your understanding. Uh, and the first three chapters I'll describe in a minute, but it's not just for your own understanding uh, about what to know about God. It's really about uh, the motive for everything he's about to say. It's, it's the, the fuel in the tank for everything that he's about to say in chapter 4, 5, and 6. And this is what he's saying. In other words, just to kind of recap the first chapters, in the beginning he says, you've been adopted. Therefore, everything that comes along. Christ died for you while you were dead. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, I urge you to live. God has given you every spiritual blessing. God hasn't withheld anything to give to you in the spiritual realms. He's, he's even destined his whole purpose in this world before you were even born, before the foundation of the world really took place. He's, he's set himself on making sure that you would get every spiritual blessing. So, therefore, he says you've been raised up earlier in the book. So therefore, walk this life. God's rich, unfathomable love has been lavishly poured out onto you. You can never even understand it. You have to, in chapter three, he says, we have to pray just to get a glimpse and some sort of understanding of the knowledge of God's love. Therefore, live a worthy life. You've been seated with Christ. You're the dwelling place of God. You don't go to where God dwells. God's taken up in inhabitants in you. You've been brought near to God, therefore. Paul says, therefore, I call you, I urge you to walk out your calling with which you were called. I love uh, Paul's ability to use the same word over and over again in one sentence. Uh, in university, you get bad marks for that. You know, if you, it's like, hey, how would you define calling? Paul would say, well, you've been called to live a calling of which you've been called. I don't have any, I never had any professor that would say, great answer, Brad. But Paul, uh, writing the Bible, gets a pass, I suppose. But I think that's also uh, intentional here. This word, to call, pericaleo, calicio, all these fun words, akalothite, I don't really speak Greek very well. But the word here is, to, is for someone on the outside to encourage, or very churchy word, to exhort, or very literally to call one out in the most positive of ways. To, get, to, to, to go to someone and say, 
hey, you know there's this incredible world to live in. There's this incredible reality. How about you go experience it? It's the word Jesus uses to describe the, the role of the Holy Spirit. When he says someone's going to come and be a comforter, both a comfort and a challenge. Someone from the outside's going to inhabit you and empower you to live this fantastic life. That's what he's saying when he says, you've been called. I want to urge you. It's all the same words. But I want us to understand some of the difference just in language that gets used often. Uh, before this verse, all the language Paul has used is the, is the language that can most simply be described as proclamation. He's just been preaching uh, with his pen. Uh, he's been saying, this is what God is. This is how he works. This is what God has done. This is how you are. This is the reality that you live in. He's just been proclaiming these things in incredible words and language about the infinite love of God that's been directly poured out onto your souls, and that is really important language in the church, to be told over and over again, hey, this is what's true about God. This is what's true about you. That's really important. We need the gospel preached, right? That's, that's what Pete was saying in the beginning. That's why you get together on Sundays. Uh, and then later on in this book, actually from the half of chapter four on to the very end, Paul uses uh, didactic language or, or teaching language or just sort of wise words where he's instructing us on how to live. It's filled with imperatives and practicalities. Here's the rules of life to follow. These are the things you must do. These are the things you should not do. Stop doing those things. We also need that language. We need that clarity about, man, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Uh, we don't know what we're doing. I think, though, the, the Western church, if you will, uh, we've majored on that second type of language, that didactic, here are the rules. This is how you're supposed to live. Why don't you just do that? And then sometimes, every now and then, we'll have big crusades or big moments where we use the pro proclamation language, where we say, this is what's true about God. Uh, I think there's, you know, you're probably in a church that does a lot more of the proclamation about God, which is really fantastic. Uh, everything that I've known about all of your leaders, that's what's happening. But maybe that's what you've experienced, though, is the other way, where, hey, this is what you're supposed to do to live. Here's some good news on the back end, you know. Um, you might call that legalism or moralism. Uh, if you're really churchy, you'd call that Phariseeism. But what Paul is doing here is something that we miss often, the language of encouragement, the language of, this is who you are, but let me come alongside you and tell you, there's a beautiful hill to climb. Why don't we go do that together? It's like a friend that comes to you and calls you up and says, hey, why don't we go travel the world? I think we could do it. I think we could sell all of our stuff, buy the plane ticket, and go around the world. Or the friend that comes to you and says, hey, we've been watching these documentaries about climbing Mount Everest. What if we actually did it? What if we 
put all of our eggs in that basket. We hired a Sherpa. We went to the Himalayas, and we actually summited and stood there on top of the world and watched the sun rise. That's what Paul's saying. This word, I'm urging you to walk a life worthy. Walking worthy. Do life according to that picture. Sort of plan your steps, plan your life, do everything that you're going to do in the cadence of the good news about God. All of that stuff that's before, you've been adopted, you've been blessed, you've been raised to life, death has been conquered. Do every part of life that way. This is your calling. Vocation, just to be clear, is not the same thing as occupation, though we sort of link them together often. An occupation is a task that you've been paid for. People hire you to do these tasks. When the tasks are done, you go home and you get on with your life. A vocation is something that someone gives you that dominates your whole life. You know, like when you welcome that child at the hospital, this doesn't become an occupation, you know. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. This is how I occupy my time. It's a calling, always, forever, never stop being. The same as with an artist. It's just something that you are, whether someone pays you for it or not. It's how you view the world. It's how you live in this world. It's your calling. So when Paul says here, I urge you to walk in your calling, walking worthy of the calling of which you've been called, he's saying, do all the stuff of life as a person who's been called a son of God who's been called a resurrected human. Do it all. Dwell with God. And so, as we even think about all the lives that we're not living, let me just encourage you, as a friend, where we hardly know each other, (laughs) there is a remarkable life to be lived. There's an incredible life to be lived. A life filled with humility and love and consistency and being strong and being powerful. A life of healing and restoration. A life of of hoping for things to happen in your city or your nation and then beginning to step into them and see them happen. There's a remarkable life out there. There's a remarkable life even in the mundane right here in this neighborhood. There's a remarkable uh, resurrection power that, that is, is around you and in you to walk out and all the shopping and all the dog walking and all the coffee drinking. And man, you guys can coffee drink. It's so good. Man, you have been empowered. The very resurrection of God, Paul writes earlier in this letter, has been given to you. The same power that that awoke Christ from death and walked through that empty tomb is in you. So man, uh, this is a phrase I've learned. Give it a go, you mug. (laughs) Is that right? Okay. Earlier this week I said, give it a go, mug. And people said, that's not how you say it. And he describes here kind of the stuff of this, the nature of this life. It's a life of humility. 
Uh, wouldn't we love to actually, at the end of the day, say, I'm kind of humble. I also think that, that he would use that kind of language of let's go climb Mount Everest, and he would say, let's be humble, as if it's a similar sort of feat with a similar kind of payoff. Gentleness, the same way. Patience, a loving of one another, a life of unity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, we would just be eager to be together, to have one mind, to be on the same page, like all of that stuff. What sticks out about the list that he gives is it's kind of a communal list. It's, it's assumed that you would be doing this all with each other. That Paul isn't just coming to each one of us and whispering in our ears, live a life worthy of your calling. He's coming to a group of us saying, no, together do this. It's really easy to be humble alone. Uh, you know, I've, I've not bragged to myself about myself in quite a while. It's with the other people that I'm prideful. Same with gentleness, patience, and love. It's all can only be enacted with the body. So he's calling us, he says, you've been, you've been conceived to Christ and to this life, and it's a life together. Later on in the passage, he talks about all the good stuff that you get from this kind of life. Uh, maturity, knowledge, knowing God, not just knowing about God. That's quite a life. Even in that, that story, uh, the novel from the beginning, that was one of the heartbreaking realities of this man. He saw what his uh, family was doing, but he didn't know his family at all. Paul's saying, let me urge you to live the calling that you've been given, and you will know God. Not just know stuff about him. You'll have a, a resistance to and a contrast to the world around you. You won't be slandering one another or gossiping on each other. You won't be selfish. There won't be egos or lies or any of those things. This is the big payoff. And this is probably, I'm pretty sure, the vision for your church. That this is this is what you would be, this kind of people. That's kind of the idea of a missional community, a group of people committed to living the life, living the reality of Jesus, living worthy of the calling that you've been given in your neighborhood, in your town, in your work, in your city. Like this is the full thing. A community where we speak the truths of Jesus in love to one another so that each person can be built up and complete in Christ. Like, that's what you're doing with your life or trying to do in these communities. So there it is. That's what this passage is all about. Simple enough. At least it's a good description of how we might want to live. I think maybe now I've painted a really good picture of the lives you're not living. But, the, but you're still broken underneath the weight of it, Maybe. Maybe some of you might be needing to work on the humility piece, and you might be thinking, I'm kind of doing this well. Even while we kind of stare at it from the outside, we kind of try to imagine this life that's worthy of our creator's creativity. We're still knowing that I don't know how I could ever move towards it. In that story, 
the, the grandfather, all he had to do was get on an elevator, go down, cross a, the street, get in another elevator, and he would know his family, and he would be living all the lives that he was meant to live. How do we, how do we get into that elevator? Go down and cross the street and walk into this glorious life. It's kind of the religious content of our culture has given us a few ideas. Um, find your motivation. It's a good one. Uh, dietitians and nutritionists, they're always trying to help me figure this out. You know, what motivates you to exercise and lose weight? Find that one thing. Put it on your, you know, on your window and your mirror and your, put it on the dashboard of your car and, and that, put it on your refrigerator, for goodness sakes, and that will motivate you, you know. Uh, I would like to wear smaller pants. But then that just doesn't come through, does it? Finding that, that one thing. And so then our culture says, yeah, well, you've got to find that one thing, that one thing worth living for, that one driver motiv motivation. But then you need to find your way of doing it, you know? You need to find uh, your system of figuring it out, finding the path, the way to do what's right and what's good. To, so to, to find and to live this really wonderful, incredible life, you need to just choose a system, choose a path, whether it's, uh, you know, eating well or eating organically or walking all the time or driving all the time or making lots of money or spending all your time with your kids or going on lots of vacations. Just find your way from your motivation. That's what you need to do. And then our culture also says, if you mess up with all that, if you ruin your family, if you ruin your work, if you uh, get proven to be a person who is not good, Find your way out. Find your exit. The horror and the shame of doing something wrong, best way to find your great life then is if you just kind of disappear. And that's really the cycle that we've been given of getting down the elevator, walking the street, and getting into the life that we want to live. Find your way. Find your one thing, your one motivation. One bit of this passage I haven't described or talked about yet is what Paul says here. He says there's, it's like a creed. It's like a statement that he probably didn't come up with, but the church likely read together. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's exhortation doesn't stop with, hey, live a really good life. The encouragement is actually centered on this thing, this reality of there is one hope. And the substance of that hope is one Lord, one God, one baptism, one faith. I think he had to have been thinking of the Hebrew Shema, which is this uh, really uh, famous, repeated phrase in the Israel's uh, life and their culture. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
There's one body. There's one church. has one spirit and one hope. And this is what it is. This one thing. It's Lord. This one thing is Lord. Jesus is king or master. A good king. A good king who comes not to get people to sign up with him or believe in the benefits that he can bring, but a good king who comes on his knees serving, caring for, dying for, rising again. We know that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth because unlike anyone else, death could not contain him. He's king. And he says there's one faith. There's one belief. There's one thing. One reality, one message, one gospel. There's one thing of good news. And it's that Christ has done it all for you. Do you believe? Paul, though, here is not saying, get more faith, do more faith. He's saying, there's one thing to hope in. There's one thing to believe in. Whether you acknowledge it or not, that's it. It's him. He says there's one baptism. There's one way of becoming transformed. Baptism is a great word that Christianity stole from the culture around it. Uh, It was the language of taking uh, white fabrics and submerging it into uh, dye so that you could pull it out. And something that was just white is now royal. You submerge it in purple, it comes out, and you now have regal clothing. Paul's saying there's one transformation that happens, and it's God taking you and submerging you into his identity, his character, this one faith, and you come out, and you are brand spanking new. But at the end of it, he says there's one God and one Father of all. There's one God who fashioned the heavens and the earth, an ever-expanding cosmos. If you are on Instagram, I highly recommend you follow the the best Instagram feed about the Hubble telescope. It's this really big thing that we put into the uh, atmosphere so that we can see the depths of the heavens. Paul says, there is one God, the maker of heaven and earth, and one Father of all. Not just a distant, powerful God, or one king who rose from the dead, or one thing to believe in, but there's a Father. I love the psalm that was read before. What was it that Big fella boss in the sky. Who sees you with loving eyes, care, concern. Who knows you. Who is over all, who's through all, who's in all. He's everything. The richness of this life is in the one. The eternal one of God, Peter says, to describe Jesus. This creed is actually the driving belief 
It's the, it's the elevator down. It's the, the, the walk across the street. It's the going up in the elevator and standing into this beautiful new life that you could have never imagined. He's the one. He's the everything. He's the one that came in all humility, in all gentleness, in all patience, in all love, willing his whole life to bring about a unity between humanity and God. By his own blood and body, making a way for us to be reconciled, ushering us into this phenomenal life. He's not just an example, and he doesn't just do it for you and kind of carry you there. He's also victorious in it. He's victorious over everything that would separate you from this life. He does both the will and the work, Paul writes in Philippians. He's like a graffiti artist. It's really lovely when my illustrations overlap with an actual place. Uh, Earlier this week, they gave me one day off while I was here. It was nice. Uh, I went to Flinders Street Station. I got out, uh, and I walked through this alleyway, which I'm sure is really famous, and there are graffiti artists lining this alley, or lane, I think you describe, call them. Uh, and there were these people that were creating, not, they weren't just tagging things, like in South Los Angeles where I live, people spray paint things to say, hey, this is where the bloods are, this is where the crypts are. It's kind of gang violence. Um, but here it's, these people are, have lines of cans and they're spray painting and they're creating these incredible murals. Like, beautiful sights. One of them was about Kobe Bryant, who's a Laker, which I love that one. Took a picture with it. Uh, It was really great. Uh, But the artist stands there and just creates. He does all the work. He works through the night. He works through the morning. And then stands back. And if, you know, an artist fully whole, but, like, this is what God is like, steps back and says... I've done a really good job. I like what I've made. I like what I've done with this wall that was broken and weary. I like, I like the beauty that it brings into the world. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, he describes it as his workmanship, his masterpiece, his magnum opus. He steps back and he says, that's really great. Just like with graffiti, Uh, Everyone who walks through that alley or any of the other really great spots throughout this city, when someone sees it, they feel something. There's a that's good art, right? They have a they have an encounter with something beyond just stone and paint. They they see something, they even know something. And great art, when you see it, this masterpiece, it actually teaches you something about the world. Um, you guys have lots of art museums, right? Yeah, go, go check one out this afternoon. Experience that reality. In the same way, Christ has victoriously created you, conquered the lives that you're not living, and is actually creating in you this incredible, glorious life. And in the same way, you've been created new, 
When people see you and encounter you, they see something. They feel something. They even might know something. Uh, Eugene Peterson describes the fact that the church is God's billboard to the world, saying, coming attraction. You are that mural, that masterpiece that declares already the incredible victory of God. The victory of God over your sin, your particular sin. The victory of God over your particular death. That we all eventually, our hearts might stop beating. Uh, hopefully Christ returns, God yeah, willing. But if not, you all have that moment when your heart will stop beating. But Christ's victory is even particularly over that death, that moment. You will be raised to complete life. His masterpiece, his victory is even over the particular evil that you've experienced. All the hardships, all the pains, all the things that say I can't go down and I can't live the life that I'm supposed to be living. And so, church, I just incredibly, uh, with lots of attempts, try to urge you to take hold of this life, the life of Jesus, the full measure of Christ, Paul describes. I urge you to live a life that's congruent with Jesus, the Jesus that you already believe in, with the God that you worship, you are already his masterpiece. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the truths of this, this passage. We thank you for your word, that we've been able to sit here under it and hear it, get to hear some thoughts about it. We pray that your spirit would awaken us to this glorious life. We thank you, Jesus, for living the most glorious life, the most spectacular, amazing existence, and that you've given it to us and you've conquered us, our sin, our death, our shame. You've made a way. You are the way. So even now we proclaim with the rest of this time that we have together, you are the one way. Thank you for doing that in our hearts and in our lives. Amen.